Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. And I'm Naz Modirzadeh. Today we're going to talk about Colombia. In 2016, the Colombian government signed a peace deal with rebels from the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. That deal ended what was at the time the world's longest running civil war. It had torn apart Colombia for more than 50 years. But almost five years on, parts of Colombia's countryside are as violent as ever. Although most of the FARC has demobilized, an array of armed and criminal groups fight amongst themselves and with the military for control over areas that the guerrillas left behind. They battle especially for control over illicit markets, including cocaine trafficking, informal mining, logging, and extortion. Violence is on the rise in Colombia. So is the drug trade. So is corruption. This wasn't the way it was meant to be. Colombia's government and security forces have struggled to contain the bloodshed. They rely heavily on operations aimed at capturing or killing leaders of armed groups. Many inhabitants of Colombia's countryside are caught in the crossfire. Over the past few years, perhaps as many as 500 activists or social leaders have been killed. The 2016 peace deal laid out an ambitious program of development for rural areas. It was supposed to undercut the drugs trade. The accord pledged to help farmers growing coca, which is the raw material for cocaine, transition to growing alternative crops. That program has lagged, and instead the security forces increasingly resort to eradicating coca by force. Crisis Group has published extensively on the crisis across Colombia's countryside, including a paper last week on the government's coca eradication efforts, and one a few months ago on the murders of social leaders. To talk about all of this, we're delighted to welcome back to the podcast Beth Dickinson, Crisis Group's Colombia expert. Beth is in Bogota and has spent a long time over the past couple of years in areas affected by the violence. She's been reporting on Colombia on and off since 2011, covering topics from criminal and armed group violence to illegal mining, migration, and national politics. Beth, welcome and thanks for joining us. It's great to be back. Thank you. 
Can you take us to the areas of the country that are most affected? Where are they and what do things look like there? So one of the things that's happened since the 2016 peace accord is that the conflict has really moved back to its historical center, which is in the countryside. These are places that are really invisible for the elite here in Bogota, for the elite in big cities. Um, they're places that are often far from good transportation networks, often far from even cell phone or mobile connectivity. Um, they're really sort of at the edges of the territory. The, the types of places that we've seen really slip back into violence are very sadly the same places that have suffered the most from the conflict historically. I'm talking about um, areas that were abandoned by the FARC when the FARC let down their arms in places like Choco, which is a department on the Pacific coast, um, and also Cauca. They're also in places that are along key trafficking routes or have otherwise lucrative links to illicit economies. This could be deforestation, it could be illegal mining, it could be drug trafficking. And it's finally in places where there's no challenge from the state for armed groups to infiltrate the institutions, to penetrate weak local governments, and really to impose their own rules and norms uh, over the society. So, Beth, before... There was the FARC before the peace deal, again, quite a large insurgency. But now you have an array of, of different armed groups. Could you tell us a little bit more about them? I mean, who are they and, and sort of what are they doing in, in the areas you talk about? I think something that we can say uh, pretty much across the board is that armed group criminal groups in Colombia have been the winners of the post-FARC peace deal in terms of territorial consolidation and also their ability to exert control over uh, parts of the country. They've also frankly been the winners of the pandemic in terms of accelerating all of those trends of consolidation. We can think about these groups in, in let's say, three different buckets. The first and, and perhaps most obvious and, and indeed the, the group that has benefited arguably the most from the peace deal is the ELN, which is the Natu National Liberation Army, the last remaining leftist insurgency in Colombia that was really born from some of the same grievances that the FARC brought to the table in terms of rural inequality, lack of access to land. Um, and this group really does still have an ideological formation in the sense that the way that they manage their relationships with communities are very much around ideals of group uh, participation, a sort of leftist government. Um, but this organization is interesting because unlike the FARC, which was extremely hierarchical, the ELN is very decentralized, which means that it varies a lot by region. So you have one sort of type of ELN on the Pacific coast and a very different ELN in the south, for example. Um, a second sort of bucket of armed groups that we can talk about are, are the so-called FARC dissidents. Now, this is a bit of a, a deceptive term because many of the dis dissidents are neither ex-FARC nor are they really dissidents of the FARC in the sense that uh, most of the sort of ground day-to-day -day fighters who are members of these groups are new recruits since the peace deal. They, um, they are not former commanders. Um, they're also less so much, we can say, dissidents in the sense that um, they're fragmented. There are between 25 and 28 of these groups throughout the country. They don't often work together. When they do work together, the alliances are often temporary or very fragile. They can fracture on a moment's notice. Um, and finally, I would say that with a few high-profile exceptions of dissidents from the peace process who have left with a clear political motivation, the vast majority of dissident fronts in the country really behave in a way that's quite different from the former FARC in the sense that they're they are acting more like criminals and less like an ideological leftist insurgency. I think a final sort of category we can say of, of armed and criminal groups are, are what we call here the post-paramilitary groups that, that trace their roots 
to paramilitaries that worked um, often in times in collusion with members of the military during the 1990s and early 2000s to fight the FARC from a sort of right-wing political perspective. Many of the commanders who run these post-paramilitary groups today trace their roots to that same insurgency and their behavior and their modalities of violence. We're talking about mass displacement, targeted killings, um, extreme use of, of these very violent tactics as a way to, to impose their rule on a certain place. Um, those sort of modalities really continue and that's a consistent aspect of, of, of how they operate in the countryside. So you've got in essence, the ELN, as you say, an insurgent group, but with different factions. You've got groups that are called the FARC dissidents, but with all the nuance that you talked about, uh, often behaving more like criminals. And then you've got the post-paramilitaries. And sort of, could you talk a little bit about what they want? I mean, what are they trying to do in areas that they're fighting over, uh, in areas where they're, they're trying to vie for control? So this is really a way in which the conflict has also evolved since the peace agreement. With the perhaps exception of the ELN, none of the armed or criminal groups today in Colombia have a real interest in contesting the national state. So they don't have a fiscal reform plan that they want to take to Bogota. They don't have, you know, ideological ideas about how the country should be governed. I, I think when we, when we talk about these groups, we have to make the distinction. They may not be as ideological as they were in the past, but they are still political. Why? Because what they're seeking to do is to take a very local area and consolidate control over land, over local government, co-optation is a major problem in infiltration, over the way that people behave, over the things that they can and cannot do, and over the economy. Beth, how do those living in these areas that are subject to this kind of local control that you're describing uh, view these groups? Yeah, so I think the, the impact of, of having an armed group like this operating in the area where one lives um, the most descriptive way that I've ever heard it described, and it's often described like this, is, is the law of silence, the ley de silencio. So when a group like this enters, um, one of the first things that they will do is, is very visible demonstrations of violence and very visible demonstrations of control. And the message that sends is clear and it's lost on no one. This is a country that has lived with armed conflict for 50 years. And so when this message of a targeted killing or a mass displacement is sent, everyone knows how to behave. And the first behavior is to shut down and not say anything, not go anywhere you're not supposed to, and really just go into a survival mode. Um, certainly there are different types of situations that communities can find themselves in. If you have to have an armed or criminal group, certainly the preference is to have just one. And often the areas that have just one group with consolidated control have a relatively low level of violence if we look at the statistics. Now, that doesn't mean that all is well. People are living, having to pay uh, protection taxes. They're living in constant fear, perhaps. But at least there's not active fighting. A worse scenario is when there's two, two or more groups who are contesting an area. And this is where we really see um, levels of violence escalate dramatically. And I think a scenario that is perhaps the least preferred by communities is when there's one or more group and the military is trying to retake control or trying to attack that group. Because this exposes the community not only to the repression of the armed group, but the potential blowback that military operations can have on the community. Again, these armed and criminal groups are not interested or strong enough to contest the state. So what do they do in terms of retaliation when there is an operation? They attack civilians. They accuse people of being informants. And they accuse people of being spies. They displace people. Um, and this sort of violence is absorbed by the community when there are military operations. 
So there's been this sort of extraordinary number of, of social or, or campesino leaders that have been killed over the past few years. These these figures that are very influential in their villages. Could could you talk a little bit about this? So, so who's killing them and, and why? These armed criminal groups that are much smaller, much more fragmented. Again, they don't have to establish their rule over the whole, you know, the whole western part of the country or three or four departments. They really just have to control a neighborhood or a municipality. And so the most efficient way for them to do that, and it's 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 absolutely tragic, is by killing the visible people who have a, a, an outspoken role as leaders of that community. When violence is used against these social leaders who are really representing specific groups, so it could be an ethnic community, it could be um, you know youth, it could be um, environmental interests. When someone who represents that community or that interest is threatened or killed, it sends a message that that entire community of resistance needs to be silenced. And it's very effective. Um, often we see that when these sorts of threats or, or killings take place, it sparks displacement of the same community that the leader represents. It sparks, again, this law of silence that just sort of shuts down anyone who would push back against the presence of these illegal groups. And it's really um, a message that's lost on no one. One of the most pernicious things about the way that the conflict functions right now in, in Colombia is that these types of violence don't just have knock-on effects in terms of the relationship between the armed group and the community. They have knock-on effects within the community itself because what they do is they generate distrust and they really tear apart the social fabric. Um, when someone like this is killed, neighbors start to look at each other. Are you working with this group? Can I trust you anymore? Who did you talk to? Who who gave them this information? Um, this is really pernicious, and it's really had a, a, an incredibly lasting and damaging effect, I think, in, in, the, in communities' ability to rebuild, right? I mean, we saw this for so many years during the, the conflict with the FARC, that these sort of killings, again, they just tore apart the social fabric. Beth, if we could go from that, the social aspect to, to the economic one and the material one, in a sense, your recent report, Deeply Rooted, talks a lot about how cocoa production seems to have boomed since the peace sale, perhaps paradoxically. Why is coca such an attractive crop for farmers, especially in these rural areas? So coca has been, coca, which is the raw material for cocaine, has really been intertwined in Colombia's conflict for uh, since really the, the, the 1980s. And as many will well remember here, there have been vast efforts to eradicate the crop and try to limit the drug supply. One of the results of this is it's pushed coca cultivation to the edges of the Colombian territory, the most remote areas, the areas that are farthest to reach, the areas that will be hardest to eradicate. And we call that here the agricultural frontier, which is essentially a way of saying the furthest point you could go in agricultural land before you reached the forest. So what does that mean for producers? It means that these are areas that often have very little access to transportation, roads that flood constantly if they have roads at all, um, relying on river transport in many cases, which is extremely expensive because of the price of boat fuel. Um, and this is a very hard place to grow a legal crop because anywhere that you would want to sell it is going to be very far away. It's going to be very expensive to get there. You don't have a way to store it, so it might just go bad along the way. Um, coca solves all of those problems. And I think this is really something that, that is so vital to understanding why so many small hold poor farmers continue to grow it. Coca is the only 
the only agricultural crop in Colombia that has a guaranteed price that is set by the armed criminal group. So that, that means that the farmer knows exactly how much they will earn from the crop when they plant it. They have a guarantee that they will have a buyer for their crop, so you don't have to worry about it, it you know, spoiling in the field. And it's collected farm by farm, which means that the traffickers literally go house to house to collect the harvest. And so all of these problems of transportation, they just disappear. Now, the combination of those factors, the reliability of this product, means that farmers can do things that they can't do with other products. First of all, it means they can take out credit. So while you're waiting for your first harvest to grow, you can go to the merchant down the road and say, look, I'm growing coca and I need some, you know, some rice for my family in the meantime. And they'll give it to you because they know that you'll be able to sell your crop. Try doing the same thing with plantains or with papaya. Impossible. Um, and, and so this just it creates sort of an, a reliable subsistence living. So I want to be very clear as well that this is not a happy or easy life. Um, this is, you know, hard work, and it really will not earn much more than sort of the ability to subsist. Uh, but that's more than many other legal crops can provide in these areas of the country that are so remote and so far from any of the institutional support that would make agricultural uh, products viable. And yet in your report, it seems like many of the farmers you speak with and you talk about actually want to wean themselves off of coca planting. Why, given the, the description that you provide? So there's this incredible tension, I think, between these two things, that coca has these, these undeniable upsides. But everyone who grows coca also knows that it comes with this risk of violence, that it comes with these downsides. It brings families and cultivators into direct contact with the conflict. What do I mean by that? Let's think about just the point of sale, for example. When traffickers or armed groups come to collect the crop, this puts a family in direct contact with an armed group. If you're a single woman head of household, for example, imagine the risks of gender-based violence. If you have young children, young boys who perhaps are, are looking for you know, to, to move on from this remote area, could be enticed by the, the idea of, of earning a little money, a little salary, easily can be drawn into child recruitment. Um, during the pandemic, we've heard a lot of very alarming reports about young girls being taken by traffickers to go to areas where there's a concentration of an armed and criminal group. Why? Because they're out of school, they don't have space, safe spaces to go to, and because of their livelihood, they have this regular contact with the armed group. And coca is harvested every 90 days, so this is very frequent. It's not, we're not talking about a once-in-a-year contact, we're talking about a, an ongoing relationship um, that has to exist in order for this economy to function. That's, I think, one side of the, the risk. Um, the other side of the risk, frankly, is, is fear of the state and fear of the military um, in these areas. Because growing coca is illegal and because much of the state response has been to forcibly eradicate, and we're talking about um, the military entering um, and, and, again, forcibly pulling up the crop, and there is a great fear of being stigmatized, criminalized, um, being mistreated by the military and the state. And, and um, in previous generations, there was also a great fear of fumigation. So aerial fumigation, um, farmers who have had experiences with this discuss 
and remember how the planes come and the whole family runs and hides under the you know under the, the bottom of the house to try to avoid these toxic fumes and then afterward the water is poisoned you can't go crops for months sometimes even years um, and it's just it's a trauma that these families have lived over and over and and helps explain also one reason why many of the many of the families who grow coca today are actually displaced or otherwise victims of the armed conflict. So Beth, you spoke about it a little bit, but uh, could I ask you to talk a little bit more about this? So you, you, in the report, you write very compellingly about how women are sort of disproportionately impacted by the violence and by some of the forced uh, coca eradication. Uh, many women-headed households rely on the coca cultivation for their survival. Uh, female growers report cases of sexual violence. You talk about the danger of young girls being seized from their homes. Do you want to say something more about, about that? Absolutely. So some of the most vulnerable um, victims of Colombia's conflict are women who are head of households. Why is that? Because they lack many of the support structures um, that others would have to lean upon um, in those situations. So women who are, who are landless, who find themselves in remote areas with no way to earn a livelihood, um, coca is almost sort of an obvious choice to have an economic stability and to have the ability to invest in the family. So you, you have stories, and, and we heard many in, in, in the field, um, <clears throat> from women who said, look, we knew the risks, but... Coca was the only way that I could educate my children. Uh, you know, thank God that that I was able to grow coca for 10 years because it meant that my daughter could go to school in the nearest small town. It meant that I could pay for the health care for my ailing, you know, older, older mother, for example, things like that. The way that women invest their the small savings that they're able to make from coca, I think, has had an, an impact on, on many generations of households. So it's not only women who are heads of household, but also we heard many stories of women within their own household who grow coca, their own little sort of plot of coca as a way to carve out their own financial independence. So, you know, maybe their husband receives his payment from the coca and, and some part of it is is spent, um, you know, inevitably on on. on drinking or you know visiting with friends and things that might seem frivolous to a mother in a household but she has her own coca plot and so she can also invest and spend the resources in a way um, that that can build the family so just as women I think are um, disproportionately um, helped by the economic side of, of coca I think they're also at the vanguard of risk because of this direct contact um, with the armed actor because of the role of women traditionally in um, in rural Colombian society. They have less negotiating power in these, in these types of situations. Women are disproportionately represented among those who are arrested for cultivating coca, including women who have children outside of, of prison who they should be attending to. This is one of the tragedies of coca more broadly is that, you know, the growers and particularly women growers are really the most val- most vulnerable part of this entire supply chain that leads, of course, to cocaine trafficking and, and, and many of the things, you know, that we'd all like to, to limit. But the force of energy to stop the cocaine trade is falls on the cultivators of coca who are really themselves much more resemblant of victims of the conflict than perpetrators of it.
Beth, I think that's an incredibly helpful and compelling uh, sense of what's going on for the farmers. I, can I draw your attention now to the state? So your your report has some pretty striking video footage of soldiers literally sort of digging up coca plants uh, in some of these areas. What is the logic of the state's response, both in terms of the coca and also in terms of how they're tackling these armed groups? So eradication is a real priority for Colombia in terms of limiting the the supply of coca that's used in order to make cocaine. The peace process had a voluntary program that was meant to help farmers voluntarily leave coca, eradicate their own crops, and then move on to other products. Um, that had eradicated about 40,000 hectares of coca between 2017 and, and the current day. But last year alone, Colombia grew 200,000 hectares of coca. So the government believes that forced eradication is a necessary complement um, to the substitution program. Now, currently fumigation is not allowed uh, by the Colombian courts over um, environmental and health concerns. So what that means is that the government has dramatically increased something called manual eradication, which involves sending police and military directly to coca fields where they come into sort of head-to-head confrontation with farmers and literally use shovels and their, you know, their own hands to pull up the coca crop as well as spraying pesticides at very close range. So this is a visceral confrontation. This is not something that's a bit remote. You know, when we talk about eradication, it's not like um, some sort of sterile process where you just, you know, get rid of the crop somehow magically. No, this involves a deployment of soldiers with arms to areas that are extremely poor and vulnerable, where they come into direct conflict often with protests by the same cultivators who don't want their crops eradicated. And eradication is frustrating. It's frustrating for everyone, and it's, I think, no one involved in the process, neither the soldiers nor, obviously, the the cultivators who are experiencing it, enjoy the process. Um, It can result in clashes, direct violence, um, killed 16 people in 2020 during 1,862 violent confrontations. So this this is something that's happening frequently. This is a significant number. And as a result of all of this, Unfortunately, it's very ineffective. So when, once land is manually eradicated, um, between 50% and 85% of that same land is replanted with coca. Why? Because the military comes in, they eradicate the crop, but they can't stay and hold the territory. They don't have the manpower or the interest, frankly, in being these areas. So they leave, the farmers burn the, burn the soil and replant. And in four or five months, you have the same coca crop going again. So what does this imply? This implies that in order for eradication to work, you have to have a perpetual conflict between the military and the countryside. And that, I think, is the root of how this response is generating more violence um, than it's solving. So coupled with that, I would say, is a, is a strategy to tackle armed groups that, um, for lack of a better way to describe it, is, is almost functions like a management consultancy, where there are like key indicators that you need to tick off. And it's less about sort of the end result than about how many boxes you were able to check. Um, What do I mean by that? So when the military is going into these areas, what they're focusing on is capturing or otherwise neutralizing leaders of armed groups. So they have a list of XYZ people that they would like to capture and they will go in specifically for that reason, take this person that there is their target and then leave. 
This isn't about securing territory. Um, it isn't about sort of trying to reduce the influence of these armed groups. Because again, let's imagine we take away the leader of X armed group. The next day, there's just going to be another leader of that armed group. And in fact, there could be contestation over who's the leader of that armed group, which will generate violence. Who will it generate violence against? Not against the state, against the community. Because the new leader of that group will have to show that they're in charge, will have to purge internally to prove that they're in charge. And so every sort of capture or kill we can imagine as generating waves and waves of violence, um, again, within the same communities that are um, that are already suffering their presence. So I think the, the combination of these two strategies to, to sort of forcibly go after coca hectares, to forcibly kill and capture um, leaders of armed groups, is really, it's not working. And in fact, we can say that in many cases, it's generating more violence than it's solving. And it certainly isn't addressing any of the sort of fundamental reasons that these groups are able to thrive in the countryside. And so, Beth, I mean, in these areas, how do people view the state if their if their only interaction with the state is, you know, soldiers coming in and pulling up their coca crops uh, or soldiers coming in and, and killing an armed group leader, but not staying there to protect the civilian population? You know, how do people view the Colombian authorities? It's really sort of like a bipolar um, view of the state. So on the one hand, you have this intense hostility. It's, there's really no other word to describe it. I think, you know, particularly towards the military and the security forces, there's this sense that that the security forces are not interested in protecting them. They are an aggressor. They are another armed presence in, in the territory. And this is a very, very dangerous um, relationship. Uh, and also, frankly, makes it impossible for the military to do their job, even if they wanted to, because... You know, how do you build intelligence? How do you even try to build intelligence? Or how do you, you know, become close to a community so that you can dismantle an armed group if that's the relationship that you have with civilians? Um, so that's on the one side. On the other side, it's almost like a like a waiting for Godot situation. There's this idea, I think, in the countryside that like if only the state would show up, it would be so great. If only the state would bring education and would bring, you know, economic opportunities. And if only the state would build that road. And if only the state, you know, wasn't corrupt. And so we could, you know, do the services that we need when we have to do a a, um, a bureaucratic, you know, um, transaction. Um, so there's this, these two very, it's bipolar impressions of what the state is and what it should look like. I think this is the key contradiction that comes up a lot in Colombia, where you have, um, sometimes I think, you know, in, you hear people argue, these remote areas don't want the state. They re reject the state. You know, they want to live under these armed actors. No, it's not that. It's that they don't want the manifestation of the state that they've had access to, which is military operations, forced eradication, and a complete lack of services. So yes, they want the state, just not the state that they've experienced. And so, Beth, what would, what would an alternative look like? How would, as you say, how would the state show up? Well, I think it starts by following um, some of the roadmap that is really quite well laid out in the peace accord and for which the infrastructure already exists in some cases. So one great example is the substitution program for COCA. When this program was first put on the table, um, out of the estimated 215,000 families in Colombia that cultivate COCA, 180,000 immediately signed up to the program in a matter of months, which is to say that families wanted to get out of coca, they wanted to do it in a way that was safe, that helped them transition. And um, what's happened in the meantime, unfortunately, is that program has been shrunk 
and and reduced to only 99,000 families, so about half the size it was originally. Um, The benefits that were promised to help farmers transition have been very slow to arrive, and in some cases they haven't happened at all. And most alarming of all, the sort of core of these projects, uh, the, the, of this program to help farmers transition was these, um, this sort of block of support to create a new livelihood. Only 3% of the beneficiaries of this program have gotten that grant of support. So we're talking about five years after voluntarily ripping up your livelihood in areas where there are no other viable options. So let's imagine what it's like to be one of these families who's still holding out after five years, waiting and hoping that there's going to be a safe exit for them from coca so that they don't have to go back to this life of fear um, and and, and sort of constantly running from one side or the other. And there's a chance, I think, to save that program and to save the credibility that could be built by that program in terms of establishing a real... Um, state presence in terms of showing that the state is benevolent, that they that that these cultivators are part of Colombia, that they are not criminals. They are people who should be part of the state, who should be integrated into society and who should have the same opportunities um, that other Colombians have. And um, I think that that opportunity is currently being squandered, but it doesn't have to be. So that would be one way forward. I think a second way forward since in, in discussing the, the security strategy is really to take the current priorities and flip them on their head. So at the moment, again, we're talking about um, very um, assertive statistics-focused priorities in terms of showing demonstrable results, rather than thinking of spaces that need to be secured as territories and people who live there. What if the indicator was, how much safer is this community in one year? What if the indicator was, how how late at night can people walk on the street without feeling threatened? or how much interaction is it possible to have between the military and civilians without this conflictivity. Those sorts of of priorities, I think, would make for a better strategy towards long-term stabilization. Um, And of course, we can't stop combating the armed groups. No one's saying, just put your arms down, you know, go back to your barracks. But it's about what are you trying to achieve is the end result. And the end result has to be some sort of security that civilians who are living in these communities can feel and can believe in, in order that they can be invested in it themselves. And do you think the the Colombian state, the simply the sort of sheer numbers of the security forces, is that is that enough to do that? Is it enough to go in and presumably that there are going to have to be, as you say, this doesn't mean an end to all operations against some of these armed groups. There are still going to have to be operations. And then there's going to have to be a big presence, presumably, of, of police, maybe in some cases of the army, to protect civilians in areas where sort of armed groups have been cleared or the leaders of armed groups have been killed. Are there, are there sort of just in terms of sheer numbers, does the state have the capacity to do that? Well, one way that they could easily expand that capacity would be to limit forced eradication, which is currently taking 30 to 40 percent of troops away from these other sorts of operations. Um, You know, members of the military who we spoke to at a very senior level expressed frustration, like this is a distraction from me doing my job. This is something that is taking away manpower. It's taking away my focus. Um, And and it really does prevent them, I think, from thinking a little bit more strategically and and more long term about what their response could look like. but maybe maybe it's not enough manpower, you know, what's there now. I think one place that does need to be thought about more and potentially expanded is something like rural policing, right? Right now, the police, you'll barely see them in some of these places. You'll only see the military. And I think in transitioning to some sort of police presence 
that is uh, functional, that is focused on sort of, you know, day-to-day security issues is really important because it sends a message that these communities themselves are not criminal. So I think this is one one of the stigmas that's been planted throughout many years of armed conflict, but it's being reinforced today, is that the communities where armed groups are present um, because the the presence is so integrated into the same community, often it's invisible, it's not like people wear uniforms anymore, um, there's often a, a sort of stigma from the military and also from outsiders that these places are criminal, that this is just a very dangerous area, you don't want to go in there, it's so unsafe, you don't know who to trust, and, and we have to change that. And one way to change that is to send a visible signal that this area deserves to be policed. Beth, in what ways you've been reporting on this conflict for many years, and I think you really vividly ask us to imagine what it is like to be in the shoes of these people living in these rural areas and caught between many of these dynamics. I'm wondering for you, what it, was there a shift in thinking about this from an economics of conflict perspective? What does that perspective, do you think, add to the way we understand what's happening in Colombia? Colombia's conflict for many years has actually only been viewed through an economic lens and maybe disproportionately through an economic lens. That This is all about the drug war. This is all about the drug trade. Um, and I think the thing that's very powerful for me when I'm visiting these areas is to see how deeply connected those economic structures are um, to the social structures and also to um, the very underlying roots of how the society is organized that have generated conflict. So what do I mean by that? I think a great example in Colombia is is always land. Land is one of the major generators of conflict in Colombia. Access to land is extremely unequal. Um, the vast majority of farmers have, you know, something like less than 10% of the land, whereas, you know, a few large farmers have um, hold most large plots and, and certainly the productive areas of the country. Um, So here's a a clear root of economic conflict that has generated resentment, that generated the initial grievances for the FARC many years ago, that has never been addressed or solved, and continues to generate, I think, hostility and a lack of options for people like cocoa farmers, who perhaps if they had access to more land or if they had access to land titles, many many cocoa farmers don't even have access to, um, you know, to formalization of their land, um, it could really open other doors um, to that. But why is land so political in Colombia? Because land has been the gateway to everything else. Land is the gateway to imposing social control. Land is the gateway to um, managing the political environment, to winning elections, um, because land produces rents. And rents are not only in the form of um, you know, products that can be trafficked, they're in the forms of protection taxes, in the forms of um, collecting um, for election campaigns. Um, land is at the root of everything everything in Colombia. So here's an economic root of the conflict, but what we can see is it's almost like the roots of a tree and it just branches into every other aspect of the conflict. So this is actually emblematic of why the peace accord was so important and is so important. We have to keep going back to it because for the first time it put on paper all of those things that are at the base of the conflict, like land reform, like rural reform. And if we don't go back to the roots, you know, the branches will just keep growing. You can cut the branches here and there and you can sort of reshape the tree, but you're never going to be able to fundamentally uproot things and and change the patterns of violence that are happening in the country if you don't address those sort of core inequalities. Beth, thank you so much. That's a really great way to end and a fascinating uh, discussion. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me.
So now it's really a, a lot to reflect on there. I, I don't know, what, what are the main things you took from the conversation? I thought that Beth did a wonderful job of inviting us to try to understand what's happening in the rural areas in Colombia and what is really undermining the peace process, the ways in which land governance resources and promises that have been broken to people living in these areas are interacting um, in complex ways, but also in ways I think in the end that she said could be reversed. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I, I was struck by that as well. And this sort of bigger question that we talked about at the end, which is sort of what a Colombian security strategy should look like in these rural areas. You know, it's something we write about in other places in Latin America, where you've got these sort of many armed groups of different stripes fighting for control of territory, control of drug production, other parts of the illicit economy, often clashing with security forces. You know, what does policy look like? Obviously, you have to use force, but what form should that take? What else can you do? Can you talk to groups whose only motivation is profit? What does demobilization of criminal groups look like? And kind of most importantly, which we touched on at the end, how can states that are often very clumsy, sort of blunt machinery of states how can that perform what is a very delicate role of, of winning over people in areas affected, of giving them some of the basic basic public goods, the basic services that they want? You know, what is an approach that's more rooted in what local people want, what local communities want? What does that look like? I thought that was, you know, in the way she portrayed that, I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, and I think in a way, in a field where I think we often hear so much um, sort of lip service to the idea of of localization or local-led or local-controlled, I thought the way that Beth talked about the fact that many of these armed groups are now really focusing on local governance and are perhaps saying we don't have statewide ambitions, but we really are focusing on what we can extract from this this town or this area and juxtaposing that with where she closed, which is the idea that these people deserve policing, right? They deserve a sort of non-war governance. Uh, quite quite striking. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a great sort of micro look at parts of Colombia. If you zoom out, there is this sort of bigger question of, of the war on drugs. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not a health policy expert. I'm not a drug policy expert. You know, and there's obviously a lot of different factors to weigh in. But from the perspective as a, of a conflict prevention organization, from the perspective of an organization like Crisis Group, I think it's pretty clear that the war on drugs, that prohibition you know, has been pretty much a disaster. And it's not just me saying this. Obviously, a lot of Latin American leaders in the countries where cocaine is produced, in the countries that it transits through, you know, increasingly, uh, increasingly agree with this. So, you know, there's the sort of micro of what's happening in Colombia, and then there's the macro of sort of global drugs policy, which which obviously kind of hangs over, hangs over the the, the insecurity that that a lot of people in rural areas in Colombia are feeling. Absolutely. Actually, Naz, I want yeah. to say one other thing before we close, which is that two years ago this week was the Ethiopian Airlines crash. You probably remember it killed a lot of UN workers, other humanitarians, many others on the plane. And one of them was a, a very close friend of mine, uh, a guy called Oli Vick, who was working for the UN in Somalia at the time. And actually, Oli and I met in Colombia uh, in the early 1990s. Colombia was a country very close to his heart. We did a whole bunch of different stuff together. We worked in East Timor together. We shared a house in Quetta in Pakistan. We worked together in Afghanistan. All these different places we went, he was really felt very, very attached to to Colombia. Uh, and I know that quite a few of his friends listen to the show. 
So I just wanted to say that also that, uh, that this week I'm thinking about them, thinking about all his family, his parents, his sister, his former partner, Ilaria, his two beautiful daughters, and uh, thinking about you too, Ollie, and, uh, and missing you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of our work on Colombia and on other places on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Namby. And thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question or comment, a rating or review, and we hope you join us again next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.